And so um, I, I really want to begin this message with a disclaimer. And that is that um, I, I probably am not qualified to preach this message. And before you go and point a finger at me and go, ha, 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 then why are you preaching it? I want to also point out that you're probably not qualified to hear it. The thing is, I am an American pastor who lives a reasonably comfortable life in a sleepy little podunk town. Oh, it is. It is. And I've never been threatened or imp- with imprisonment or torture or anything for my faith. I've never had my property confiscated, my family torn apart because of my commitment to the gospel. And neither have any of you to my knowledge. Now, if I was a Chinese pastor who had served several years in a harsh, harsh prison for preaching the gospel, and you were a Chinese church whose very presence here this morning would represent a, a great risk of persecution, I suppose I could preach this with great power, and you would have the ears to hear it as well. But even though we have not paid that kind of price for our faith, we have all faced the fear of witnessing to lost people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if it's the flesh or just an inbred fear of conflict, but I know for many, just the thought of witnessing gets your stomach churning, your palms get sweaty, and you think, I feel a call to talk to this person about Christ, but how am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? Well, Peter's theme in our text for this morning is Christian witness in a hostile world. His words apply whether we're facing torture for our faith or whether we're just nervous about telling someone about Christ. And as a pastor, part of my calling is to prepare the sheep for persecution and hard times. And sometimes I, I wonder if I am misreading the signs and have developed somewhat of a Elijah complex. I worry about that because I see a lot of churches just going on assuming business as usual. They think they can go to the end of the age as they are. But I'm grateful for people like Ed Clowney's commentary on Peter where he notes churches today that experience little persecution need Peter's instruction in a future nearer than they suppose, they may find themselves suffering with the rest of Christ's afflicted church in the world. I think Clowney was right in saying that the church needs to look no farther than Scripture for all the instructions, for all matters of life and practice, and preparing us for persecution. Peter was writing to Christians living in similar circumstances. They too were living in a hostile culture 
that was losing patience with Christianity. And when a child of God lives in this world which is dominated by Satan, there's no doubt that there will be times when a believer will suffer. Sometimes it doesn't matter how nice you are. I mean, isn't that what everyone says is the 11th commandment? Thou shall be nice. Sometimes, no matter how peaceful you are, how willing you are to be good, you will suffer persecution and attack in one way or another. It may be at your job. It may be in your family. It may be in your neighborhood or in your community. Sometimes, sadly, it's even in the church. When this kind of thing happens, it's critical that the believer really zeroes in on Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the way the Apostle Peter saw it. As a matter of fact, that's the way all New Testament writers saw it. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 3 and verses 10 through 17, I want to read what Paul said before we turn to our text for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Listen to this next part. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Remember this part. Deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith and which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for training, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So with that, now let's turn to our text in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 starting with verses, uh, verse 13 and going through verse 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience 
that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here we see a theme that Peter's been going through. The first thing he talks about is our witness. Our witness in a hostile world. That in verse 13 it says they'll harm you. In verse 14 it says you'll suffer. In verse 16 you'll be slandered and reviled. In verse 17 you will suffer. And then the next thing we see is the practice of our witness. And there's two parts to this. And it's best to, uh, to combine both behavior and thoughts here. Good behavior. Be zealous for good work. Be righteous. Be good in conscience and behavior. But we should have thoughtful words in defense. And then thirdly, we have the power governing or behind our witness. It's Christ's Lordship. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Verse 16, be of good behavior in Christ. Verse 17, do the will of God. You see, these three themes show us the place we are called to witness. It's in a hostile world. The practice of our witness in good behavior and thoughtful words. And then in the governing power of our witness being the Lord Jesus Christ and His Lordship. But one thing I want you to notice is there's a connecting word here. It's the word and in verse 13. And that connects that quote that Peter had of Psalm 34 in verses 10 and 12 there, we see where Peter assures us that God will vindicate the righteousness and punish the wicked. And that's an important truth to keep in mind as we face hostility and feel intimidated about witness. Fearing God above all else will take care of the fear of man. And it will give us boldness when we need it in order to bear effective witness for our Savior. We live in a, a very unique time in church history. For over 250 years in the United States, we have enjoyed an immense freedom from persecution. And that's not an absolute statement, but I know that there are Christians who have suffered here in America for righteousness' sake. But for the last 250 years, there hasn't been widespread persecution of Christians. And this is not par for the course. You do not see this throughout history. As a matter of fact, if you ever picked up a book, the, the uh, Fox's book, book of Martyrs, and if you can, I would get your hands on one. 
and read about some of the horrific suffering and terrible persecution that brothers and sisters of Christ have endured in the past. As a matter of fact, you could just do a quick Google search and find that there is a tremendous amount of persecution that's happening in other parts of the world even today. Church history is full of suffering. They persecuted Christ when He came, and they will persecute us as followers of Him. But how do we respond when the righteous suffer? Well, our text this morning gives us encouragement and instruction in this area. God wants us to be prepared to respond properly when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And this is done first and foremost, as we saw in Second Timothy, through sound doctrine and training in righteousness. I remember one day when the Lord was pleased to bring His grace upon me. To bring me the gospel of His glory and His grace. And bring me salvation and redemption. And I knew that this was not something that I did for God, but He did for me. So many people get that backwards. You are saved for Him. And I started to realize it wasn't just about walking down an aisle, taking someone's hand, making a profession of faith or some mental assent to some facts. It wasn't going through some religious ceremony or religious motions. This was a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It was a new birth. I was a new creation in Christ. It was God speaking into the darkness of my life. Creating something out of nothing. I was brought forth from the grave by the voice of Jesus Christ. All new believers are new creatures in Christ where they are eternally and gloriously saved. You don't have to come to me. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to sign a card. You don't need to follow an ordinance or law. You need to come to Christ and Christ alone. And then if God has done that work of grace in your heart and redeemed you, He brings you to a knowledge of Him, to trust in Him, and a willingness to confess Him publicly and to make others aware of the grace and mercy of God. You know what's troubling? is in the modern culture, we can see so many people who are passionate about so many things. They're passionate about climate change. They're passionate about animal rescue. They're passionate about health care and all kinds of things. 
But in Christianity, it seems that so many people come out of a blah, vanilla kind of Christianity. They walk into church thinking that that's what they need to do. Just walk in. No passion. No tears for a dying world. But when they start to hear the Word of God preached where it's concise, where it's powerful, people tend to lock on to that. You know the thing that has been said is unless you go deep into your doctrine and theology about God, you will never raise to the mountaintop, mountaintops with your worship. You will never. You will be vanilla. You will be plain right across the board. It is knowing God in the depth of Him. And then we sing out and praise to Him. But the question is, Does the church give people something really to die for? Something more than the concerns of things that will pass away. Do those who are saved by grace and Christ through faith alone and Christ alone come to worship with purpose and conviction? There are so many who are ready to kill for what they believe in. Let me ask you, are you willing to die for what you believe in? Whether it's actually dying or living, people go, well, you know, I, people go, would you give your life for your wife? Yeah, I'd do that. When is that going to happen? Probably never. But I can live my life as if I give my life for her every day. And that will be proof that yes, I would give my life for her because I show it. Do we walk in here with that attitude of I will give my life to Christ? Am I willing to die or sacrifice my life to my Lord and my Savior? And so looking at verse 13 again, we read, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? The question to that answer, or or the the answer to that question is, is implied. No, no one. This is a general statement. There are few who under normal circumstances will hunt you down and oppress those who do good. And we can apply this to different circumstances. Peter's already talked about in the previous verses. He talked about it in context of government. If we're the type of citizens that the Bible commands us to be, it would make no sense for a government to oppress us. We're taught to be loyal and submissive and peaceable and productive citizens. These are the kinds of citizens that any government wants. And then in the workplace. Again, if we're the type of employees the Bible commands us to be, 
it wouldn't be in the best interest of a business to oppose us. When we're faithful and diligent and hardworking and submissive and honest employees, these types of employees are what any business would love. And then in marriage. If you're following the biblical pattern of marriage, a marriage relationship, and you're doing all those things the Bible commands us to do as spouses, we would have the type of marriage most people would want. And so what Peter is saying here is a common sense statement. Who would oppress you if you follow after good? Even the Greek philosopher Plato wrote, injustice causes seditions and hatreds and fighting one another, but justice, concord and friendship. You see, it's just not logical to attack someone who is doing good towards you. There's a level of security in following that which is good. Matthew Henry wrote, to follow always that which is good is the best course we can take to keep out of harm's way. And so what does it mean to be a follower of that which is good? Well, the word there, follower, is is the Greek word, mimetes. And it means imitator. It's actually where we get our English word, mimic. We are to imitate Christ. And therefore, we develop a passion for what is good. And when we do that, we tend to lose the interest in doing what is bad. I used the word develop because the word become follows, uh, become followers is used in the past tense. Orderly societies put bad people in, pre- in prison or they punishment or they deport them. People who are zealous for what is good are always a benefit to the culture. In many cultures in history, the person who stood firmly for good and not obnoxious about it were welcomed and appreciated. And practically speaking, most people like to have a good neighbor, right? We like to have people that are good, have good conscience. But sadly, that's not always the case. There are evil people in this world who can make a difference and make it difficult for those who have a passion to do good. Remember I said, remember 2 Timothy 3, deceiving and being deceived? There are people who are being deceived into doing bad things. Can just look at recent history, and I say recent because you know some of us were born right on the tail end of of World War II, and we understand that an entire nation was deceived into doing evil things, and that's why Paul warned in Second Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. People who are zealous for good tend to stand out as 
a culture becomes less and less good. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like that's where we are? Peter had taught that God draws a contrast between the saint who seeks to do good and the sinner who causes evil. Remember what verse 12 said, though. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That distinction, authored by God, becomes obvious to people and often causes conviction. Sinners who oppose a convicting conscience might lash out at righteous people because you're causing them conviction. You don't have to do anything but do good. Remember, the the word is a two-edged sword. It brings conviction or confession. So many of us, and I've mentioned this before, when we talk about confessing, confess to the Lord, we too often think about it in the way that a criminal confesses, tells of something that was previously unknown. That's not the way the the word is in the Greek. In the Greek, it, the word is homo legeo. And I don't have that because I, I was going through my sermon this morning and I went, I have to add that. Homo legeo. It means to speak the same. Lord, I confess to you that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm saying the same thing He is. Lord, I confess my sins. Means, I think they're as wretched as you do. We need to understand that. We need to understand that as we confess Christ, there are those who will find conviction. And maybe puts us in difficult situations. And maybe the brothers and sisters in Christ will have unfavorable circumstances because of our our confession and their conviction. There have been brothers and sisters in Christ who have been fired from their jobs. They've been forced to move. They've had their homes vandalized. Just recently, churches being burned. They've been beaten, imprisoned, and even executed. One human rights watchdog group has concluded that persecution against Christians is at an all-time high, even eclipsing those days of Roman persecution. Even the Spanish Inquisition, even the purges of Bloody Mary, and even Nazism. How do we explain to those brothers and sisters that there is no one to harm them if they simply have a passion to do what is right? 
Well, we have to understand the meaning and application of the term harm. Generally, it is the idea of causing trouble. However, the term is broad enough to include anything from doing evil to causing injury to even death. The verb here is in future tense, meaning that no one can cause trouble or injury to the person who is zealous for good in the future. Who will cause trouble for the child of God in the future that is at judgment? No one. In Matthew 10.28, we hear, Do not fear, and you won't find this on your outline either. See, I was busy this morning. Do not fear the one who can kill the body after that. Do nothing. Instead, fear the one who can not only kill the body, but cast your soul into hell. The great encouragement is that even if we should suffer to the point of death in this life, there is no one who can take or minimize or marginalize our eternal life. Be zealous for good because you are safe in the arms of Jesus and no one can touch you. If you would please turn to John 17. And I, 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 let me tell you, I would have had this whole, whole chapter here, but we'll, we'll just look at verses 14 through 19. John 17. Starting with verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. What? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but listen to what he says, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by what? Truth. And so continuing with verse 14 of our text, Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now that if clause that we find there, in a little research, I found that that's a fourth class conditional. Meaning, it's probably, it's less than probable. But, there is a chance if you are good. There will be an instance where someone will try to hurt you. But no, when they try to hurt you, you are a blessed person. You see where it says suffer 
and then it says, uh, uh, you know, it says suffer. The, the Greek word there is pasco. And it means that you are a, recipi- a recipient of this misfortune. And I think you'll immediately notice that the suffering here is not for doing good. It's for doing what is righteous. The difference between the words good and righteous is that this word specifically has in mind the objective, righteous standard of God. Doing good is more internal and more subjective. And doing what is righteous is more external and objective. Doing what is good is more internal and more subjective And doing what is righteous is more external and objective. This suffering is due to the fact that you're lining up your life with the Word of God. And if you suffer some satanic attack for this reason, you can be happy. Because you are truly a blessed person of God and know that your reward in heaven is great. And then if you look at the last part of verse 14, it says, do not be afraid of their threats nor troubled. When we find ourselves the target of attack, our first reaction is typically one of panic and worry. But Peter says, calm down. Calm down. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't let fear grip you. Those two words, afraid and threat, They're really the same word. They both come from the word phobos. That's where we get our English word phobia. You know, it's funny. Some people can see a spider. No problem. Other people see it and they run. Some people see a snake. Ah, run. And others will pick it up. No problem. It's a phobia. It's something that we are fearful of. It's a kind of paralyzing fear that wants to make us run or flee or to get away. And it can even be getting away from a a problem or pressure. Peter says, you don't need to run. Don't be afraid. Just calm yourself down. Even when people are trying to intimidate you, don't let them succeed. You live in this way because you love Christ. And because this is who you are in Christ, you should not be troubled. Christians are to fear the Lord, not people. Not be afraid of things. Not be afraid of things that cause other people to fear. And this is because we love Christ. That's because we know we are in Christ. We don't fear. Peter is applying a passage from Isaiah 8, 12 and 13 to his discussion of of faith triumphing over fear. But this really might be lost on some people because they don't think that they're really truly being ruled by fear. They don't look at their life 
and what they do and how they respond in light of the Word of God. They just have these fears and they go along and go, well, that's just natural and normal. Everyone does that. No, they don't. No. You might not think that you're being, you're, you have a fear of suffering persecution. But then you find yourself unwilling to stand up and speak the truth. And for a, a Christian, having to suffer for righteousness sake may become a reality. It may vary in degree and severity. It may uh, uh, vary in its form or when it takes place or where it takes place. Or it could vary from person to person. But there are people who will oppose you because they oppose Christ. Yet, don't fear them. Don't have fear of them. If you would, again, please turn to the book of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. John chapter 15, starting with verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Do you know, here is the biggest thing about the sovereign grace of God's own choosing. Scripture says, you did not choose Him, but He chose you. You have been chosen out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then he continues, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. There are troubling situations that will come your way. Yet you're not to be troubled. John 14, 27 and John 16, 33, Jesus says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What Peter has said so far looks like this. Who is there that can harm you? No one, because you're God's. How should you feel about it? Blessed, not fearful or troubled, 
But make no mistake about it. Peter is saying it. God is commanding it. Be courageous. But how do you do that? How can you your faith triumph over your fear when that sort of courage doesn't come automatically? I don't know that it does with anybody. I think that there are people who are so full of themselves that they they end up having this false courage, calling it Christian courage, and yet they don't sit there and say, it's because of Christ. They go, I got it. I've got it. How do we do this? How can we be bold and obedient in the face of intimidation? How do we overcome the fear of being excluded? The fear of being rejected and isolated, marginalized, insulted, slandered, held in suspicion? How can we overcome being gossiped about or mocked? How can we avoid being troubled by the world's tactics? How do you obey a command not to be afraid? How can you faithfully face the possibility of suffering when you know in your heart that you can't possibly do it? You need to submit yourself to what God says. This is actually an act of faith. And it might not be in line with your current feelings. It's an act of your will. And it's ongoing. It requires perseverance. You know how it is. You can drive out that fear for a while and all of a sudden something brings it right back in. You have to get courageous all over again. That's part that worries us the most. Not submitting in general terms, but having a submission in those, those intense moments when immediate pressure is on. And so you know what Peter does in verse 15? He gives us practical wisdom on how to go about this. Go figure. In verse 15 of our text, Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Wow! How does a mortal, sinful man sanctify God? God is holy in His essence. He is infinitely holy. He's perfectly holy. He's unchangeably holy. How do we make God holy? There is no way we can make God holy or add to His holiness or make Him any holier than He is. So what in the world does Peter mean? Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Well, in the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers, verse 12, God said this to Moses, You didn't sanctify me. I told you to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. 
And so when the apostle writes, sanctify the Lord, Peter means that you and me are to regard God as holy, to to believe it, declare it, proclaim it, that God is holy. Peter means for us to look upon God, to consider God, to regard God as holy, as a holy God, immaculately, infinitely holy. How big and holy is your God? How great is your God? How do you look upon God? Do you regard God? And consider God is absolutely holy. My friends, to do this, we have to sanctify God in our hearts. This isn't theology, this is experience. This isn't a creed or catechism, this is a heart experience. If we know in our hearts that God is almighty, we must sanctify the Lord. We must consider Him to be holy and eternal. Problem is, we're frail. God is almighty. We're finite and He is eternal. We're sinful and He is holy. It's actually what Job found out in Job 42.5 when he saw the Lord. He had gone through all these experiences and he finally said, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear. But now my eyes have seen you. In the next verse he says, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you see what Job's attitude was? He saw the holiness of God and he was overwhelmed by it. He saw the holiness and the majesty and the greatness of God and he was consumed by it. He trembled because of it. Isaiah said the same thing when he saw the holiness of God in Isaiah 6.5. Woe to me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe! That's a proclamation of doom upon Himself. Woe is me! You see, when people see God for who He is, they should be overwhelmed with His holiness. This is not about getting a liver quiver. Or sit there and do a little navel gazing. and Oh man, this is looking up and seeing the Lord God in all His majesty. People sit there and all the time think, if I get this, this experience going, if I get this feeling going, that's going to do it. If you were to sit there and just admire a car out in the parking lot, you wouldn't become a very good mechanic. 
It's when you get down and understand what makes that run. How does it run? What does it need in order to run smoothly? And so we need to look to Scripture and see how God works. How He he forms us and runs our lives according to His will. That's where it all begins. It does not begin with you and me. It begins with thoughts of heaven. True saving faith begins with who God is. I think all too often people have a God that's a little God. He looks more like Santa Claus than he does the almighty holy creator. We need to proclaim God, the big God. Too many people have a small God. You need to do this in your heart. You need to sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Come before His presence with fear and trembling and thanksgiving. God is in His holy temple and let all earth keep silent before Him. And do you know what happens when you sanctify God in your heart? The result is verse 15. You will always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks. Who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, I see so many sermons, they just point toward that and go, well, you know, give a defense, be ready. This is much more. Can you? I hope you all can see this. This all feeds right in. What Peter has in mind here is not that the Christian who answers the question that he's been asked by a sincere inquirer of the Christian faith. What he has in mind here is someone who is antagonistic, who attacks and who, who is uh, interrogating. Someone who is part of the prosecution. The word for ask is the word eteo. And it means to require or desire. This could be, instead of ask, it could be better translated demands or requires. As in a prosecution demanding an answer from a defendant. And instead of give an answer, some versions have a better translation like the New King James. Give a defense as the accused making his defense before the prosecution. Actually, the word defense is the Greek word apologia and only appears when a person has been accused and is either literally or figuratively standing trial before his accusers. Give a defense. Apologetics are actually giving an offense. When you're an apologist, you give a defense for your belief. And so we should always be ready and willing to make a defense to anyone who demands and accounting for the hope that is in us. And once we understand these things, then we'll 
understand what the content of our defense is, what our accounting is to be. It's not eloquent speech or fancy arguments. As a matter of fact, it's foolishness. The foolishness of Christ crucified and buried and resurrected. The Lord who is over all and is going to come and judge the living and the dead. You don't need to be smart. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You don't need to be eloquent or wise because this is our defense. This is the Christ that we have in our hearts and that we have sanctified as Lord. This is our only account in the hope that is within us. We have no other and know no other hope. And so Peter continues his theme in verses 16 and 17 by saying, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here Peter is saying that you must have good conscience, a clear conscience, and that can only happen if you are living a life consistent with holiness. Folks, to profess Christ with your lips and deny Him with your life will only cripple your witness, internally and externally. Guard your hearts against impure motives. There's always been a connection between the holiness of Christians and God's blessing of the church and the abundant harvest. I think these are some of the reasons we don't see revival. And if we were more a holy people, the world would be more ashamed. And they would heap disrespect on Christ's people. But all too often, I think we invite scoffing because they get bad reports about our conduct. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We should seek to be fearless. Even the most lowly and most uneducated Christian can be fearless and always be ready in defense of the gospel if they have truly sanctified Christ in their hearts as Lord. And I pray that through our witness, God would be pleased to bring others, even persecutors, to genuine faith, saving faith in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for every member of this church who are serving as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in their neighborhoods, at work, at school, wherever they are. And Lord, you have shaken the foundations and the people in this country are trembling. 
People are asking questions they haven't asked before. And Lord, I pray that You would send Your Spirit afresh in a powerful way to guide our lips, to embolden our steps, that we would take the seed of the Gospel deeper and further into the hearts of this city than it has ever been taken before. Train our hearts for warfare, for the battle of souls. Yet let us do it in gentleness and with respect. Lord, I know that we ask a lot today. But we do ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.